The Schizophrenic 60s, Part 1, Introduction. Well, in the 50s, we had the, you know, do-it-for-the-kids decade. Well, this decade, the 1960s, was of two minds, two voices. The idealistic youth of the first half of the era gave way to an alienated uprising of hippies, yippies, and war protesters, assortedly cynical, spaced out, and committed to social change, were obsessed with self and its myriad of infatuations. Confusion and disenchantment were in the air and everywhere on the airwaves. An incomprehensible war raged in Vietnam. At home, assassins took the lives of three of the country's most charismatic leaders, John Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., and Bobby Kennedy, men who were symbols of a more humane future. As a country, we lost our naivete. Cynicism was settling in for a long stay. The schizophrenic 60s encompassed Camelot's hope at one end and Vietnam's horror at the other one. Anyone who lived through the tumult cannot forget these diverse benchmarks. And this is perfect explanation for myself. Born in 1952, I was 8 years old in 1960. I was 18 at the end of the decade and signing up for the draft. So I went from being a kid to a middle schooler to a high schooler with eyes on the news and eyes on what was going on. And for me personally, it's also a significant change. As I told you before, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. Well, at the age of 10, my father had had a heart attack, and he was 62, and so he had to take early retirement. And my dad and mom decided we were going to move not to Topeka, where her relatives live, which would have been great, but to a little town in southern Missouri called West Plains for about 10,000 people. My dad thought he would go out and fish in his retirement, and he and always, as we would travel to Topeka and Kansas and other places by train, would stop in St. Louis and Kansas City and saw all these people going to the Ozarks. So he decided he wanted to go to the Ozarks. So he wrote to the Chamber of Commerce in West Plains, and they sent him newspapers and some information. And we took it. Look, my dad took one look at the price of food and and housing, and found that we could live like kings down there. Now his retirement is only going to be three hundred dollars a month, but in 1960, when minimum wage is 160 or less, you can get a lot for your money. So we moved, sight unseen, to West Plains. We had people writing to two or three people, including the chairman of the Chamber of Commerce, Art Gutfire, who became a staunch family friend over the years. And we wanted to stay with the Adamses, but they were all their rentals were all filled up. And so we took a rental with Reverend Love. And we've often joked with him about this because Baltimore was 90% African American. He never asked us what we were. And we often joke that it might have been different if a black couple had come out of the hotel when he came to meet us. You go from Baltimore, Maryland, and then you move to southern Missouri where everybody's doors were open and everybody knew everybody else. It was quite a change and very helpful in growing up, I might add. So we'll be looking at some of those aspects of the 60s. I literally went from Mark's toys to being concerned about how do I, how do I stay out of Vietnam? Now, from, from the dawning of the American century to the start of the schizophrenic 60s, the country had really come a long ways. The turn of the century, a population of 76 million Americans had baby boom by 1960 to 179 million, more than doubling. No longer did it take 60% of the nation's people to live on the rural areas. Only 37% did. 
New York, the most populous state, 1900, 7,268,894, still held that title, but well, with 16,782,304 inhabitants. In California, although number 21 in 1900, with a population of a little less than 1.5 million, climbed to second with 17.717 million potentially fad starting trends trend makers nevada the least populous in 1900 was still that way whereas the average life expectancy of a male was 646 years old in 1900 it was at 66.6 years in 1960 for women the improvement was even greater from 48 to 73 years the leading cause of death for the Gibson girls and the Gibson man, ailments of the heart and the arteries, were still taking more lives than other diseases. However, whereas tuberculosis claimed 202.2 people out of every 100,000 in 1900, TB tests plummeted to 6.1 per 100,000 in 1960. But nationwide motor vehicle deaths in 1900 were fewer than 100. In 1960, 38,137. Women had made great strides in entering the workforce, if not in receiving equal pay. There were 23.7 million working women in 1900, 47 million in 1960. The country's major industry had shifted from agriculture in 1900 to manufacturing by 1960. The nation's dressmakers had decreased by two-thirds, blacksmiths by six-sevenths, while the number of the nation's physicians had more than doubled, as had the number of bartenders. Telephone operators from 19,000 to 1900 and electricians, 51,000, relatively new fields at the turn of the century, mushroomed by the mid-60s, 357,000 telephone operators and 337,000 electricians. The average work week had shrunk from 59 hours to 39.7, while the average pay Weekly pay increased from $12.74 to $89.72. So he said $300 a month was not too bad. In 1900, some 4,490 books were published. In 1960, 12,069. Radio and television had cut into the newspaper business. The total number of the nation's daily newspapers dropped from 2226 to 1763, and a trend that continues. As for the American family, the size of the average household had decreased from 4.7 to 3.7, while the number of families in the country climbed from 16 million to 45 million. Climbing, too, was the number of divorces, from 56,000 in 1900 to 393,000 in 1960, another trend that would continue. On the positive side, lynchings had gone from 115 in 1900 to none in 1960. At least none were recorded. So it's an interesting time. You have the Beatles music, you have all sorts of rock coming in, and of course then you have the ballads and all sorts of things. Now let's look at a few of the fads and follies. Let's start with the Jackie Kennedy look. An obsessive love affair began in 1961 with the inauguration of the boyish John F. Kennedy as president. The love interest was the country's first lady, Jackie. From almost the moment she ascended the White House steps, millions of American women primped, perined, and dieted to approximate Jackie's look. Not since the Gibson girl of the gay 90s had a woman had a model of such poise, elegance, and tasteful understatement. No other personality emerged from this decade of famous faces so closely copied, so trend-setting in manners and dress. Her appearance at a social function automatically telegraphed a fashion flash. Mrs. Kennedy was wearing a... And you can see these in the Smithsonian. Pillbox hat. 
Craze for the hat that resembled a box for carrying pills began at a presidential inauguration ceremony, when the First Lady's modest hat seemed ultra-chic in contrast to the traditional millinery sported by Pat Nixon and Mamie Eisenhower. Jackie's was really not the first pill box. Photographs were later published that proved that the wife of the President of Mexico had worn a pillbox hat earlier, that a variant of the Vogue had surfaced briefly in the 30s. But on the stylish, coiffed head of America's First Lady, the design carried social cachet, as it did as did the two-piece suit with a semi-fitted top ending just below the waist, although atop the hip bone, the overblouse that was loose-fitting but never blousy, the oval neckline often lacking a collar bare arms or three-quarter length sleeves, never full length, a slim A-line skirt to mid-knee or just a kneecap longer, and on the feet, low-slung, sensible pumps. For evening dress, only the French Empire style would do. Big buttons, huge ones, two inches in diameter became a Jackie trademark, and whereas a woman's jacket had always buttoned from the waist to the neck, the first lady made it chic to have only one button, not at the waist, but near the neck. This is a minor fashion revolution copied on a major scale. A pillbox hat had its detractors. A fad game pinned the pillbox hat, lampooned the style, as did Bob Dylan's song, quote, leopard skin pillbox hat, end of quote. But the jives abruptly stopped on the day in November 1963 when wearing a pink pillbox hat, the first lady cradled the bloody head of her husband as her open-top car raced through the streets of Dallas to Parkland Hospital. The pillbox hat, the entire Jackie ensemble, came to represent to America people in ineffable sadness, the violent end of an era that may or may not have produced a Camelot. Jackie's pillbox was the last of the serious hats. Next time, we'll pick up with these fads and look at bouffant hair, wraparound sunglasses, the Nehru jacket, etc., and so on. Now, the sources for this, Panati's Parade of Fads, Follies, and Manias, The Origins of Our Most Cherished Obsessions by Charles Panati. So I hope you enjoyed that. And as always, don't forget to come by the website, summahistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com and ask a question, leave a comment, check out our merchandise, and if you like what we're doing, please feel free to support us. Thank you very much.